Episode number 36, The Bellows, Contracts and Fees. Welcome back to the Tuttle Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history and their craft. And I am, yes, your host, Michael Cruz. And this week, back on track with October's recording of The Bellows at the Central Bar in Rivers Village in Toronto. This time our panel discusses contracts and fees, something common to all production staff in theatre, so it's bound to be a great conversation. Uh, moderator Kevin Hudson is joined by Tarragon Theatre's business agent Kesta Graham, designer Salman Rossiter, and executive director of the Associated Designers of Canada, Sheila Skye, as they go through all the aspects of negotiating and writing up your contract. Once again, I want to encourage you to go to patreon.com to support the Tuttle Block to help cover costs of producing the show, and I want to thank those of you who support the show every month. If you have any comments about the show, please forward them to thetuttleblock at gmail.com and contact us through Facebook or Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. And now, the bellows, contracts and fees, with an introduction by Christopher Ross and Pip Bradford. Uh, welcome to the Bellows. Uh, I'm Pip Bradford. Uh, I'm Christopher Ross. And behind me is Kevin Hudson. Uh, and we are the Bellows. We are the Bellows. And so are all of you. Um, before we start, or as we start, I'd like to just do some quick acknowledgements. Uh, we want to acknowledge uh, the Mississaugas of New Credit, uh, the Anishinaabek Peoples, the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Métis as the traditional caretakers of this land. So, thank you. Uh, also, we'd like to give a shout out to the Central, which is our venue again this month. Oh, Thank you, Central. Buy lots of drinks, to the bartenders. Uh, we'd also like to thank Michael Cruz and uh, the Title Block, uh, who is uh, podcasting this and who is uh, Facebook Live. Facebook Living. What is that? Oh. It's on Facebook. It's on Facebook. <laughs> it's live. Uh, <laughs> uh, please feel free to grab one of Michael's cards. He is the best. He is. Uh, he is the fourth member of the Bellows. He is the best. We guy. love him. Yeah. Um, yeah, so format of the evening? The format of the evening. Oh, uh, we had other things to say what are we before the say? format oh of the god. evening. Oh, well, we were going to thank our panelists. Oh my god, of course we were thank We were going to thank all the panelists who are behind us. Uh, who will introduce themselves uh, one by one afterwards. I, <laughs> I think we were also one going to announce well. our next panels. Oh, that's Which are off so format. Big. So oh uh, maybe we do it before the format. Uh, our next two panels on November 19th. Yep. November 21st. 21st. Yeah. November 21st. Uh, we're going to be doing our panel on... We're actually not doing a panel. We're doing what we call an AMA. Uh, so we were really hoping that all of you could give us some names of some people that you would like to ask questions to. And we're going to get those people, and then you're going to have the opportunity to ask those people any questions you would like. Anything you want to know. Anything you want to know. <laughs> There's so much. I know. Like, it's, so, it's so huge. Yep. Uh, uh, and then in December... Uh, we are going to uh, issue the uh, panel format and do a holiday party. We just want all of you to come hang out with yeah. us on December 19th. Oh, they say. I love that. December 19th. Put it in your day planner right yeah. now. It's going to be great. It's going to be really great. Cool. Uh, oh, my God. Now we're going to the format. Now we're going with the format oh, of the geez. evening. Okay, so we are going to do uh, a panel for uh, approximately an hour, uh, give or take. 
Um, uh, please uh, feel free to come up and ask questions. If you guys have questions to ask, we totally encourage you to come up. Uh, use the mic because uh, it is being recorded. Uh, and just come up and ask what you want to know. Otherwise, Kevin, uh, our wonderful moderator, uh, has a list of questions that he is going to go through. And I'm sure the panelists will generate plenty of wonderful discussion on their own. Uh, thank you very much for coming tonight. And uh, now we're going to kick it to Kevin and the panel. Hello. Thanks very much for coming. I uh, really appreciate it. Following along on the sort of success of our very first panel, which was how to get hired, how to keep getting hired, uh, which is available on the titleblock.com as a podcast. Um, we decided to do something uh, in the same vein to sort of uh, annualize our, our things. Um, and today is fees and contracts, which is really important to know. Um, I have just gotten my first full-time year-round gig, which involves a contract. It's really interesting. I did not negotiate because I was terrified and obviously just snatched at that gig as quickly as possible. Um, so we're hopefully uh, going to help you guys to avoid the same mistakes when you do get contracts like that. Um, so without too much further ado, on my left, who are you and what do you do? Uh, I'm Kesta Graham, and I'm currently the business manager for Tarragon Theatre. Uh, I'm Simon Rossiter, and I'm a lighting designer in town, and occasionally production manager, but it's been a while. Um, I'm Sheila Skye. I'm probably best known as the executive director of Associated Designers of Canada, but I also have my own management company and consulting practice. That's excellent. Uh, experience with contracts is really important. Uh, as I've alluded to, I have very little. So let's do, start with the very basics. What constitutes a contract? Does Three it things. To, does it have to be paper? <laughs> Three things. Um, uh, no, it doesn't have to be paper, but you have no proof of what the contract is if it's not on paper. Mm -hmm. So uh, paper is recommended. Uh, from a legal perspective, you need three elements. You need an offer. You need consideration, which is more than just compensation. Consideration, and you need acceptance. And those are the three components that legally comprise a contract. Okay. So are consideration like terms then? Terms, details, yeah. So uh, it may be... Scope of work and... Well, it can be a lot of things. Consideration can also be things like um, ownership as well. So once, for instance, a design is created, uh, who, who owns it thereafter? Okay. I mean, in, in some ways, considerations is literally whatever you want in between an offer and the consent, I would think. Yeah. Any term that you feel is of value to add into the contract, whether it's ownership, whether it's hours of work, whether it's the schedule... Uh, for pay, whether it's uh, the budget you have to, the work, budget with. You have to work yeah. with, which is an interesting one, deadlines, all yeah. those sorts of things. What a contract is really is it's a tool for uh, modifying your and the other party's behavior during that term and okay. thereafter. Huh. Yeah. That's a really good way to look at it. <laughs> uh, so when do you consider a contract like definite? In the process, like sometimes uh, you get offered a thing and you say, okay, whatever, you start your work, and then a week later you meet a person and sign a piece of paper. I don't recommend that. <laughs> uh, for whatever side you're on, whether you're the, the person hiring someone or you're the person doing the work, mm -hmm. um, you need to be clear that what the expectations are 
uh, including when the work is going to start, when it's going to finish. So if you're starting before one party has expected you to begin, you start to make things yeah. muddy. Right. Um, that said, we know that's not always <laughs> yeah, it's, the it's, practice. Yeah, yeah. It's, yes, I would say that. <laughs> I have witnessed that on numerous occasions. The, the issue with that, I mean, people tend to get a little bit stomach-knotted when they talk about contracts. But, but really, if you just think about it as a conversation about how this work is going to happen... And that it's it's not a negotiation in the sense of who wins, who loses. It's just a conversation, more like you might have with a spouse or a child or whatever about how this is going to work. Yeah, there are, but but I mean, the reality is there's a lot of different ways to do theater, um, and there isn't necessarily a right way to do theater. But we all know that theater works better when everyone in the room is doing it the same way. So that's really the function of the, of the yeah, contract. Well, and, and I think about understanding what the expectations are that you have of the company hiring you and the company hiring you has of you. And I imagine that there's something we'll probably chat about later about what that means. But I think entering into any project without a contract negotiated, or at least the first phases of a contract negotiated and some basic understanding understandings outlined, is a really dangerous thing. So... There are certainly times where I will start work before I've put my signature to a page, but almost never will that happen before we've had at least a first round of an understanding of either the budget or what the expectations are, either from me of them or of them for me. Um, I will say I think that that wanes the longer I work for companies. So I'm doing my 12th production for TDT this year. I know what the expectations are that they have of me and that they have from me, so the pressure's not on to sign a contract right. immediately, but, because I know those circumstances. But people also do the same thing with their friends, particularly when they haven't worked together before, and well, that's yeah, a that's, totally yeah. different yeah. ball of wax. I think, um, and I think friends, more than anyone, need Stuff in contracts. writing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you're working with people that you hang out with, you should have a contract. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Because sometimes the people that we like hanging out with are not awesome to work with. Yeah, that's yes. very true. And that's very true. protecting you and protecting them, I think, is important. Right. But they, then might, you can stay friends. they might yeah. be yeah. not awesome because they have different expectations. Yeah, right? no, that's so what I mean. Like, that not that they don't have skills, but that you, you don't go into it with the same understanding. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because my experience of being a you know, part time designer and sometime PM is that somebody says, oh, hey, I'm looking to do this show, and blah, 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 and I would really like to bring you on, and I can offer you this, and blah, blah, blah. And I think, okay, great. And then I send off an email to the venue saying, give me all your files, give me your DWGs so I can blah, 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 blah. And, like, is that in considered within scope to start that exploratory process? Because I'm sure I've been embarrassed once or twice on that, where it's like, oh, now I no longer need these things because I'm not working for this person. <laughs> No, go right ahead. I'd say, I mean, I would look at that as your prerogative, right? If you have a relationship with that theater and you want to start collecting information, I don't, I don't personally have anything against that. Um, I think if you sort of have a sense that this gig is going to happen. Um, on the flip side, if you think you might be a lighting designer and discover halfway through the process that they actually thought you were going to be the TD as well because you didn't have those conversations yeah. and you weren't you know, heading down that direction, that's where it becomes... Scary. Potentially embarrassing. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with asking for specs. 
Um, I think more people should have them online. Yeah, I do too. At people's disposal. I shouldn't have to email anybody. But (laughs) before you agree what the scope of work is, knowing what facilities are available, um, it would be really a valuable thing to know. You know, I did this one project that was in the woods. And we had nothing. Like no. Was that on the contract? Like it no takes place water. in the woods. Yes, it was. <laughs> did it specify which woods? It, uh, it did actually. Excellent. Um, but but the the issue there was um, knowing exactly what the project would entail. Right. Right. I'm gonna live like a goat for two weeks. <laughs> Amazing. So. Uh, <clears throat> We touched on sort of the scope of work. Like, what else should a contract contain in your minds? I mean, obviously, we said consideration, which is compensation, probably for starters. Dates, probably really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. The scope of work you're expected to do. Uh, is there anything else in sort of general terms that you guys look for in a contract? Well, I think Sheila hit on a really good one, which is things like ownership, which right. relates yeah. to um, uh, royalties in the case of a design that may be remounted without your explicit presence or even if you are present, um, uh, things like right of first refusal, yeah. which is, I think, increasingly important as more and more shows are now getting picked up to tour and that that world is coming back, is the idea of uh, if you did the gig first, you have the right to, to get offered it again the second time. Um, I sort of break it down into three, three, I'm back to three again, three parts. Um, so what happens if things go as planned? What is the plan? And then the offshoot of that is there's two. What happens if it doesn't go as planned? If it goes badly? If you can't complete the project because there's a death in the family or um, the producer runs out of money and the project is canceled? Like, what happens then? Um, And then the flip side is what happens if the project goes way better than expected? Like, it's the Mervishes call up and say, we want to do it. So... If you have those three elements, the plan, the disaster, and the roaring success, if you've looked at it through those three lenses, you're likely going to have a fairly comprehensive um, contract. I did a show recently. I did not take that perspective, and I didn't push hard enough on the royalty. The fee was a little low, and I just said, fine. And now it was a roaring success, and the royalty that I'm going to get on the subsequent ones is not what it should be. I did not push hard enough. (laughs) I think one of the things that's important to put in a contract is what you expect of the person who's hiring you. So a lot of contracts become about what they want from you, but I think it's really important to get something the other way. Whether it's as simple as if you're a designer, making sure that you are going to get accurate technical drawings from the theater ahead of time to make sure that, again, you're getting accurate budget information or... Is there a production manager that will support you in implementing things? Is there a technical director that will support you in implementing things? But to not shy away from voicing what you need from them as well as what they need from you. Right. So I'm hearing specificity. Yeah, and that can can be support staff. That can be great. The show's in November. My sister's getting married on the 10th. Uh, That is a not negotiable day for me. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can have me on the 9th. You can have me on the 11th. And... To me, on the producing side, when someone comes to me, even if they have a, something that might at first seem restrictive, it shows me that they're organized enough and they're thinking ahead, right? So for me, I know you've talked about it before, is how to get hired and how to keep getting hired. The really challenging thing about contract work is you're only as good as your last project. And so having those 
those extra little things, it, it, they may not be monumental. It may be one day you're not available. It may be um, the requirement of proper photographs of your work so that you can continue to build your portfolio. Whatever it is, um, it, it's showing the forethought and, and the, um, the de dedication to your craft and to, and to the long-term success of, of what you're doing um, and to that project that you are you are thinking about it not just in dollars and cents that you're yeah. you're wanting to make sure that the whole project uh, works for everybody involved. Yeah, you're not being sort of glib about the project. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You care about it. Yeah. Is there anything that uh, raises a warning flag that fits in a contract? Is there anything that shouldn't be in a contract? Like I know the term sort of sundry duties as required is a bit of a no-no, mm -hmm. and I certainly hate saying that anywhere. Um, Though I have shoveled a fair amount of snow around theaters in my time, <laughs> to be honest, and felt okay about it. Yeah. I mean, I think in some measures, anything in a contract that's not something you want to do. <laughs> and I mean, that right. seems like sort of not an obvious, obvious statement, but, yeah, yeah, but there yeah. is that that reality sometimes yeah. that that contracts that are either unnecessarily vague or that are unnecessarily precise, but place a level of responsibility on you that isn't part of a normal task, uh, right. is a problem. Um, I think the thing to go looking for is where you are given the responsibility for something, but you're not given the means and the control. Because part of a contract is about who controls what, right? So if you are uh, responsible for, uh, uh, say, a section of the budget, but they won't let you hire anybody, well, you're likely to going to run into trouble because they're going to use up the whole budget on hiring and then you've got nothing left to do right. the job with, right? So, so look at, at where, you have, have con where you have responsibility. Do you also have some sort of matching control? Right on. So uh, authority to match your responsibility. Yeah. 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 And the yeah. means. Yeah. yeah. So does that mean that you wouldn't sign a contract as a designer, say, where there was no budget specified? Not to put you know a perfectly fine point on it. Um, I'll be honest, I have, but I also sh you shouldn't. Right. Uh, and I've done. I have done it. I, I will admit at times where I have known it's going to go over whatever budget I suspect they have, and that in some measures I have been deliberately okay with not having a budget as a way for me to say, well, if it goes over budget, you refuse to put a budget in my contract, so I'm not beholden mm -hmm. to the budget. <laughs> right. Right. Um, the other thing, too, is to know, depending on your job, is to know about other personnel. So, for instance, um, uh, sometimes with inexperienced producers, they will put in a dollar value for the budget in terms of crew, but they don't really understand what that can buy. Right. So they just have a lump of money. In. That's right. Yeah. So if you then ask for what does that represent... Uh, in terms of crew, then you might uh, design more appropriately. So I was talking with a very senior designer, and he said, I know that an IA crew can uh, focus uh, a lamp in three minutes. So he says, I just look at the number of hours that they've given me for that part of the process. And then he says, I know if it's that amount, I can only design with 120 lights. Even if the venue has 400 lights, I can't design with that many because I don't have that much that many man right. hours. Right. So finding out about other pers personnel can also be as useful as finding out about dollar value. Interesting. Well, can we touch on sort of hours of work? Like as a, 
as a part-time terrible PM, uh, <laughs> the, the, the thing that was really important to me was like, okay, so you're paying me this much money, and that represents, in my mind, this many hours of my work, which means I can go take other gigs and pay my rent. And, and is that considered okay? I mean, I, I was pretty gentle about it, but I, I get the feeling it's not appreciated when you say, when they say, here's the fee we have to offer for the gig. And you come back and say, well, okay, but that means functionally for me, that's this many hours. Um, whenever I've been in that circumstance, I, I will admit that I don't often quantify the specific number of hours that I'll devote to something. But if a fee is very low and through sort of the time that I've spent figuring things out, I know whether it's too low to you know, devote my time to it or not or whatever. Although I w won't usually assign specific hours to it, I'll mm. be really clear about whether my availability will be compromised yeah. or other things I may be doing at the same time in order to make it clear that as a consequence of a low fee, if that's what we're talking about, as a low fee, yes. um, <laughs> that that you will not be my first priority I see. all of the time. Yeah. And so, and part of that is because I don't like tracking my own hours. So I don't want to actually tell you this means 30 hours because then I have to track to yeah. 30 hours and... I don't want to do but that. But you can say mm -hmm. part-time. But yes, but this will yeah. be a, you know, you will not be my first priority. And I've was, done that yeah. with projects. That was usually the discussion where it's like, okay, for tech week, mm -hmm. I'll be all yours. But for the rest of the thing, I have to take X, yeah. Y, and Z to blah, blah, blah. Thank you. But you have to be careful because even in tech week, time can add up really oh, fast. Oh, totally, yeah. And so the number of hours, like if you do start to think about it in terms of an hourly, because I admit I, I do try to think about my week in some sense <laughs> when I'm figuring out what an appropriate fee is, although I then stop tracking it as soon as I finish negotiating. But but a tech week is going to be 70 or 80 hours. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be a week. It's going to be yeah. two, two and a half For weeks sure. of work. And uh, and so to kind of really take that into consideration. And yeah. Sometimes it means pushing a bit back on budget. You offered this, but really, if you want me to be present and not have other things on the go. Right. And then you give it give them that choice. For sure. Maybe they are okay with a shared... You. Yeah, you can also put in a clause about additional services and an hour stated hourly rate, so that if, for instance, uh, you've maybe designed the set, but they expect you to paint it, which is not your normal, you know, which is not, then right. you can say, well, I I can, um, depending on what else you've got on your plate, but I yeah. can, but that's going to fall under additional services. And it's going to cost this amount. So maybe what you want to do is have the PAs prime it and, you know, that kind of thing if, if budget is... Uh, right. But I think in the same vein as that, not just in terms of designers and painting, but also even as production managers. And I think one of the things that's really important is to think about what is a production manager? What is that responsibility? And that is somebody to manage the budget and somebody to ensure that there's adequate staffing. Yeah. And anything other than that isn't production management. It's either technical direction or it's PA work or it's crew work or it's carpenter work or whatever. And maybe the nature of the show is such that you do have to take on a lot of those jobs and you do have to undertake that. But I think it's important to identify those things specifically and to say, you want me to be a production manager, all I'm going to be is a production manager. Yeah. Or to at least ensure that there's an understanding there. Totally. And to then, if suddenly they want you to go drive out to Mississauga to pick something up from decades. Which they do. Which they do. But I think it's also fair to say, no, hire a driver for that. Because yeah. that's not production or management. Yeah. Or a head of props or whatever. Yeah. And I think that really understanding the delineation of jobs is something that uh, is, is really critical. Yeah. The, 
The worst show I ever worked on in terms of stress on the people involved was one where we had all created our own job descriptions for the producer. And then when we got to Tech Week, we discovered that there were a whole bunch of jobs that nobody had been hired to do. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. So, a lot of designers and nobody actually responsible to implement. Uh, well, it was, yeah, it, anyways, I don't even want to relive it, but, but, um, uh, and, and some of it was quite serious. It came down to like audience safety issues, et cetera, too. So, so, um, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea in your discussions. I mean, negotiating is a whole different topic than what's in a contract. I know, right? we're going to get that to that very soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but in your discussions to find out about, um, you know, who else, who else is on the show or what other positions do you have open, et cetera. Um, yeah. And, and if they, um, and find out what that producer th thinks that job does. <laughs> um, yeah. We're going to go to Chris. I was going to say, I, was say, I think that's also, that's really important, not just, uh, for your personal sanity, but also so that maybe one day no longer, especially for nebulous jobs like production manager, one day no longer will you be expected to be yeah. also the props person and also come and set up, put up the set and do this and this and yeah. this. Because like, I can do that if you pay me, but in, yeah. you know, for a lot of companies it's expected that totally. you're just, yeah. you're the guy yeah. that does the guy. everything or you're the woman. Because well, they tend everything. to have a fee enough to hire one guy and that's it. And so yeah. that one guy ends up being a million guys. And, and this is super important. We, we did a whole thing on production managers already, uh, again, available on the titleblock.com. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not trivial because I've built sets as a PM yeah. and not charged for it because I didn't know any better. And that's it's just a really important thing to, yeah. And, and bringing it back to the contract issue is, and especially in indie theater, I don't necessarily think that it's a problem to do, wear multiple hats in indie theater. That's sort of what we need to do to get it done. I just think we need to talk about it. Totally. And put it down on paper yep. and say, you know I'm coming as the PM and yep. the TD and the carpenter. Or uh, what will often happen, not less and less these days, but what will happen in my life uh, as a lighting designer that does a lot of my work in dance is... Uh, for whatever reason, like 30, 35 years ago, they kind of stopped hiring TDs because it's mostly just lights and masking. And so there is an expectation that I will coordinate my own rental. Yeah. And the reality is that it's paid for. I mean, the fee is such that it allows me to do that and to deal with those things. But we never really talked about it. And yeah. I sat down with somebody a year ago and we were looking at, uh, looking at contracts and looking at fees. And it forced me for the first time to stop and, and, and look at the fact that uh, the, the question was about sort of is the fee is this base fee that somebody had been looking at appropriate and my first reaction was to say no <laughs> and then I realized that but in fact if you look at the letter of a contract and if it's just to be the designer actually no for what you're asking for in terms of tech this isn't unreasonable but I know you're not going to hire a TD yeah. and so I'm going to ask you to say plus do these things and pay me more Yeah. so uh but they don't know that because yeah. we stopped talking about it 20 years ago, For sure. 30 years ago. Well, and and plus, now we've forgotten about it. Speaking of talking about it, like the plus do these things is also like, yeah, maybe I want to build a thing For sure. as a PM. And I'm, you know, I want to someday be a carpenter. And that's your opportunity. But as long as you talk about it as if, look, I'm not really this guy, but I'll give it a shot. Yeah. 
Yeah, or they don't then, pretend that it's production management in that moment. We acknowledge right. that in that yeah. moment you are PM and head carpenter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're not asking for more money, but we're just acknowledging that it's mm -hmm. two jobs being done. But at the person. very least, you should ask for additional billing so that you're not in the program, so that future employers who come to your show will know that you're capable of building. And not so they can... That's right. And so, <laughs> that so, happens, yeah. Fair yeah. enough, but so it, sh but so it yeah, should. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and it's not so that they can hire you and think that they'll get all those services for yeah. one fee, or maybe it's one honking great fee, but, but so that, um, I mean, billing is really important. That's how you learn what the people around you can do sure. when you read those, yeah. when you read those programs. So don't, don't stop at negotiating money, right? Um, billing is, is really totally. important. That's been my theory about why we ended up with an uh, industry that seems to only hire production managers who are, in fact, technical directors as well. And it was because at one point they stopped hiring both, and we just kept the better-sounding title, but kept right. doing both jobs. And now, 25 years later, we kind of forgot that it was actually two jobs. Right, was that two point. jobs? I was billed as a bricklayer recently. I was billed as a bricklayer recently. Pretty good. In a theater show? Yeah, totally. Cool. Yeah. Wish I'd seen that show. Yeah. It was a lot of Luan Bricks. It was like 1,200 Luan Bricks. Amazing. It was pretty good. A lot of Durbond. Uh, negotiation. Uh, how much negotiation is involved in your respective careers? As a company manager. So in my current job, I actually don't negotiate any of the contracts. Is that comforting to you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendously. Um, because I came from a position, I, I, I was the general manager, and um, for many reasons, mostly personal, uh, I decided I need a job with less responsibility at this point in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked about you know negotiating with friends <laughs> and having contracts with friends. And so for me now, because it, it, a lot of the time it would be, negotiating with friends. So at this very moment, it is a nice relief to not have to be negotiating the contracts. But what I am doing is I'm executing them. Right. right? So then I'm on sort of the receiving end as I get a contract and, and I will see, okay, I know what this relationship is supposed to be. I know when I'm supposed to pay you. I know when I expect you to show up and I know what you're going to do. And I know that I'm also hiring you um, uh, a shopper. Right, you're you're Fantastic. you're going yeah. to be the ward. You're doing wardrobe, and I'm hiring you an assistant. And you've suggested some names, but I'm the one who's going to phone and see who's available and who's who yeah. can work with you. Right um, so I, I sort of have not the negotiating part of the contract, but I'm handed the contract to execute it. So I find where there's there may be holes or not. Right. Um, but previously, it was a very big chunk. Of time as a general manager, as a general manager yeah. for uh, for a show, because if you're and each component, if you're hiring production managers, because I, I worked for an independent company, we didn't have a venue, we didn't have a, a year-round staff, we had a very small core team um, and people that we worked with often. But it would, you know, this year we're doing two shows, this year we're doing one show. It's a, a cast of fourteen, it's a cast of two. So every project would have a very different yeah. requirement, and then negotiating. For a production manager, a technical director, design elements, you may have one designer who's doing multiple elements, which is a completely other uh, kettle of fish. Um, right. You know, you're, high, you're negotiating actor contracts or offering them equity minimums. You're looking for the director. Mm. You're negotiating with royalties with the writer. So it's, 
a lot of different considerations and a lot of different groups of people who have organizations that they may or may not belong to that have a framework to have this right. conversation. And that's where, for me, was the biggest challenge was switching gears to different associations that have different expectations, different protections, different needs. Mm -hmm. uh, and then even within the same kind of scope, um, so let's say I'm hiring four designers, two of them are members of ADC and have certain expectations and know how to talk about contracts. And two of them, uh, their contract knowledge is to put a beginning date and end date uh, and the element that they're designing. So having very different um very different conversations can be can be totally. challenging and remembering that when you're talking to different people they may have different experience um they may be new to adc they may be new to equity they may be new to iatsu they may be new to right. whatever they may or may not understand all of the protections that they are afforded by being Mm -hmm. um, members of this organization. So it's right. a lot. Totally. Well, if, before we go to a uh, freelance designer and the executive director of the ADC, <laughs> do, do you mind if, do you mind if we plumb these depths a little? Like, sure. uh, as a, the, on the administrative side, mm -hmm. uh, what is your experience in, in, um, using association negotiated templates? Does that make your life easier yes. on the whole? Very much so? Generally on the whole, um, because you have a, a lot of people who've agreed to these terms. Even when, sadly, the voter turnout is 60% uh, for some of the ratifications, you still have a lot of people who agree right. that, okay, yes, we will not work more than this number of hours per day. Like I'm thinking of a stage mm -hmm. manager's contract. Um, okay, hours averaging, but... It's certainly an excellent framework to start. And then there's certain parts of the conversation that don't need to be had because they're already agreed on in, in, the, in the collective agreement. Right. So for an example with the stage manager, we know the maximum work hours. We know, yeah. um, we know minimum fees that we're going to be starting with. Mm -hmm. We know if the cast is over a certain size, there's going to be an assistant or an apprentice at the very least. So there's, there's yeah. hiring um, structures in place. Yeah. Whereas if you're working without that, having all your options open isn't always a good thing. Oh, it's terrifying. Right? It's, terrible. it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, rules help. Yeah, yes, totally. Exactly. Guidelines are the best. Exactly. As a, a again, part-time terrible uh, PM, I found the CTA extremely comforting. Just <laughs> knowing that there's like a place where I start. There's a book. Yes. All the there's answers. a book where the, yes, yes essentially most yeah. of the stuff is there. Yeah. Down to the condition of the drinking water, which is interesting. Oh, I didn't the know The temperature that. of yes. the room. Uh, cool, yes. it's like cool, and clear, pure drinking yes, water. Yes, it comes up a, a lot. Yeah. yeah, totally. Temperature of the room For is, sure. is controlled. Um, yeah, things you need of, to think about. One of the things yeah. I like about the, um, you know, the contract templates is that in the case of ADC, it's a 50-year-old organization. So you can be sure that at any time in the last 50 <laughs> years, if there was a major screw-up, it's somehow made it into the, yeah. and, and that screw up is probably due to miscommunication, right? So, so that's been somehow corrected in future iterations of the contract. So what you have is 50 years of screw ups that you don't have to make yourself. You can go off and make your own. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. 
So, so from that point of view, and also, I mean, I, I've also been a career freelancer, right, in an administrative capacity. So all of those contracts are negotiated. So for me, if every time I pick up a contract, it's completely unknown territory, yeah. um, I have to stop and think, okay, what is the implication of that clause? What is it? What is the implication if things go well, if things don't go well, right. if things, you know, is, is this a good plan? Right, because you're also um, you're not just ne- you're negotiating your job description. So if for whatever reason they want you to, I don't know, um, uh, design lights before the set, um, you can tell them that's a bad plan. <laughs> I have exactly that problem going on right now. Yeah. <laughs> you do a very late scenic design, anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. within those templates, uh, go, ahead, go ahead. Well, no, I say in terms of negotiation, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I work, I've only been a member of ADC for, I think, two or three years. So I negotiated some contracts for myself before that. I also, uh, although I do it much less now, worked occasionally as a PM. So those contracts I would have to negotiate. And, and things around, especially with production management, what will I do, what won't I do, are something that I would have to negotiate. And it is important, I think, to really go through them. These days, uh, for the most part, in, in part because I do generally use the ABC contract, and it is, is sort of spell a lot of stuff out and take, takes care of a lot of the, wor- of the work, there is a lot of making sure, especially with indie producers, that we, we understand you know, schedule, timeline, those basic details. And then almost universally, I'll try to negotiate up on money, almost every time, uh, unless I have sort of a very specific history with an organization, and I know that they're giving me what they can. Yeah. Because uh, the way I look at it is if you don't ask for more, you will never get more. And if you ask for it, you just might. Right. And so I feel no guilt in saying, well, can you, you know, round it up to the nearest thousand? Or can you whatever bump Mm -hmm. it by a chunk? Because sometimes they say yes. And then you just got some extra cash. I know at least one person who has sort of written a number on a piece of paper thinking they'll never, ever take this and slid it across the table. Oh, yeah. And then they said, yeah, sure. And sometimes that works really badly for you. you Absolutely, don't want yeah. The gig and yeah. you're like, this yeah. is some outlandish number, and then you have to do the gig. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it totally. And that's always a little bit hard when you slide a number across the table, and they're like, yeah, no problem, because you're like, I could have added another yeah, totally. whatever to that, and they might have. Yeah. You want them to push back a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Because that means you're actually pushing to the limit of what's realistic. Yeah. Well, it so, depends on the personality too, right? Sure. Like there are some people who, for them, it's a game, and they really like that ping pong aspect. I find it. it terrifying and awful. Yeah, yeah. And, Gen- and then genuinely. There's, there's other people yeah. who 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 are like you, and and you know negotiations come down to how about X, and you say how about Y, and they say I only have X, and you say okay, yeah, and that's fine. Yeah. I think when it does, but it's that how about why, and if we don't ever ask for that, no mm-hmm. matter what the discipline is, if you don't ask for it, you have no chance of getting it. And I think that a fear of negotiation is one of the things to get over. Um, I think I could count on one hand out of 200 projects, one hand, the number of shows where that has resulted in we're going to somebody cheaper. Hmm. Right. As opposed to, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to, well, we can only afford this. Right. So you're in a bit of a unique position, though, because, uh, say, unlike crew or when they hire a designer, they're looking for a certain kind of aesthetic as opposed to just a certain kind of skill set. Mm-hmm. I think it's even with production management. There's a 
Yeah, I, I, I would agree. Uh, you know. I know your point about crew, though, is fair, because that one's a different... Yeah. yeah a crew, hourly crew hourly. calls, this is yeah. what we pay. Although, to, to offer the counterpoint, available. I mean, I so I switched jobs twice in the last two months, and, and the the sort of gig I was at intermediate, intermediately? That's not a word. Um, we, can, we can edit that to be super smooth, <laughs> I'm sure. It'll be beautiful. Um, in the interim, thank you. Um, the gig I was at paid me a certain amount, and then I sort of took the next gig, and then... Came back and told the employer, okay, hey, I'm looking, I'm going here, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, well, I would have liked to negotiate that. And I just kind of like kicked myself in the face. It's for true. And I have worked at some not venues even where, in fact, uh, there was a, they would get the person for whatever they could get them at the beginning. It was uh, Harborfront Center for a while where it was like they, they paid what they needed to pay you. Once you were in, you had a steady, like, I don't know, 1.5% pay raise every year that just mm -hmm. happened. But it wasn't like you. everybody walked in at 18 bucks an hour and went in. There was a certain amount of, I can get you for 18, but I need to pay this person 20 or they're not going to show up. Right. And that kind of stuff has happened. So I think it's harder, though. People yeah. are more likely... I mean, the Tarragon, I think, is a good example where I don't think there's any of that. This is the rate that Tarragon pays for labor, and it is. And... Um, I don't know. I can't imagine that if somebody said, do you pay any more than that, that the Tarragon would hang up the phone and never call them again. But the answer yeah. would be no. No. Yeah. no. So call us if you're available to work for that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. and there are a lot of theaters, just sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. Simon, yeah. that where the fees are set, right? So they say, this is, um, this is what we can pay a PM for a show that is going to be a unit set and you know, sort of this general scope or this general scope. Mm -hmm. um, and we are a e-house with equity, and so we take the minimum rate and we round it up to the nearest $5, or it's to the penny. And and that's what they can afford, or that's what they're set, yeah. or, you know, all the actors are ensemble, and no ifs, ands, or buts, everybody gets paid the same. Like, there, you, you find that there's a lot of companies that um, that do just that, and there's not... Unfortunately, a lot of wiggle room. Yeah. Although I, I mean, I don't know if I want to say this to the internet, but I have actually in the last few months negotiated with both Tarragon and TPM to my advantage. So it's possible. It's just. Well, I think it depends on the job. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah I wouldn't negotiate for a career, but to be honest, I just wouldn't do that thing anymore. Yeah. So. And I think also, too, you know, budgets are set very often before a single artistic decision is made. Oh, yeah. Right? So it, it might be, um, the conversation might not be around, I'm worth more. It's, I need more in order to be able to achieve this. Mm -hmm. Right? And so that it's not about uh, self-worth or, and it's not compa uh, combative either. It's like, this is what I would like to be able to achieve if you're on board with that. You know, right. and who knows, maybe they've saved some money on the last show or whatever, you yeah. know, got a sponsor who gave them 5,000 miles of rope or whatever it was they needed. And, you know, um, going back a little bit in terms of things to negotiate for and things to talk about that I had kind of, we'd sort of gotten close to it, but is finding out who the rest of the team is, if you can, at the point of negotiation can be helpful. Yeah. Either as a production manager, who are the designers you're working with? Or as a designer, who are your other designers, or who are your who are the people who are going to lead this process forward in terms of implementation? Um, sometimes at the outset, that's not necessarily helpful. But you sort of we all learn the personalities on both ends that we either get along with or don't get along with, or where we um, have an opinion one way or another about 
the sort of organizational whatever, yep. et cetera. Yep. And so you can make a judgment on whether you're willing to take the gig or maybe, hey, these designers are all super smooth and organized and everything is always like they're minimalist. So everything's <laughs> always under budget or whatever. Right. So this PM gig's going to be an easy PM gig. Or these guys always have huge ideas. They're going to bring something that's never going to fit in the budget and we're going to spend six <laughs> months tearing it down to get it to fit. This is going to be a hard PM gig. And those personalities you learn over time, but yeah. inquiring early who else is on board can make a big difference. I'm a fan of inquiring early too because you know certain you know that certain people have had a really good run recently or working a lot, have won a bunch of awards, etc. Well, you know that their fees have been going up. So by looking at the at the other partners in the in the project, you can maybe get a sense of where you should pitch your own fee to be in standing with theirs. Now you you may clearly be the junior. Yeah. But you don't have to pitch your fee as the junior of the juniors. You can pitch it at the junior of the seniors. Right. You know, That's which really is a different. I never, I never would have thought of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that kind of brings us a little bit by accident to when, when is a, when is a, when do you look at a contract and just think it's, it's not worth it. It's not going to happen. I, well, <laughs> no, and so, well, admittedly, that doesn't often happen to me these days. Yeah. Uh, and, um. And in part because uh, it'll often be before a contract even shows up. Right. Right. It'll be, it'll often be something like a date that doesn't work out or things that I shouldn't say to the internet. An email will come in and I'll just be like, mm, hmm. Hmm. I'm busy. Yeah. Um, so admittedly, it doesn't, it doesn't happen a lot that it gets right. to the negotiation phase. Once I'm negotiating, I have a pretty good sense of yeah. where things are going to go. Well, I mean, you let the cat out of the bag a bit with personalities involved, right? Like, yeah. you, you know, you obviously, stuff sometimes there are people who you just butt heads with, and yeah. maybe you don't want that at that particular time. Yeah. Um, so for me, by and large, it'd be before we really start putting pen to paper. Right. I'll have a sense of which way it's going to go. Yeah. Um, once we start putting things on paper, I'm usually pretty committed so yeah. it's just about hammering out the details i think one of the the so it, i mean it's always hard to turn down a contract right because you've been a freelancer your whole life you don't know when the next contract's going to come i mean i worked with a man he had two shows currently um in new york and he got a call from a high school asking if he could do some choreography for them and he was seriously considering it and i was like you know you're having a special time in your life right now maybe you should like Re, you know, relax and enjoy it, and maybe, maybe do another show on Broadway instead. You know, and, and and he thought that was very good advice. And I was 21 or something, but um, the looking at it in the context of where you are will tell you whether you should take that gig or not. And it might be because you're really attracted to working with a certain artist or the project really speaks to you. But at other times it might be, well, this is a monster project. I've already got one monster project. I know from experience, I'm a two monster max girl <laughs> and he, this is monster three. I'm not taking it. I'm, I'm not taking it. Right. And, and also if, uh, if you think you might be doing the project a disservice, it's maybe not by, by taking it. It's maybe not the time to, uh, not negotiate, but it's the time to negotiate differently. I can do it. I'm attracted to doing it. I love this project, but I'm going to need an assistant. 
who's going to pay for that assistant? Who's going to choose them? Who else is working on the project? Right. Right? Or I can't do uh, job A and job B. I can only take A. Right. So do you have a... Go ahead. Well, I was going to try to come back somehow to the question of at what point do you just turn it down? Like, do you look at it? I mean, I'm assuming where you were kind of going with that was at what point do you sort of look at a contract of terms and say, I cannot in good conscience agree to these things. Yeah, or We it's need just, to walk yeah. away from yeah. this. Um, and, and although it doesn't happen, I think that often to me, there are certainly times where I just look at it and I say, I, this isn't, I can't, I can't do this. And yeah. I think... Um, uh, I think you have to be comfortable doing that and saying, you know what, this is more than I can pull off or you are expecting more than I have the skills to do, which is often, mm -hmm. especially in loose contracts that don't have enough information, yeah. is to sort of assess it and say, you know what, they're going to need something that isn't what I can bring to the table and I'm not going to do this gig. Yeah, I've um, definitely been burned there before with friends too. It's really right. tough to say like, you know, if somebody's looking for some somebody to build them something. I'm like, well, I build things. Oh, but I, I don't do this. This is, <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is suddenly this something is I can't do. I, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think too, it's, um, hmm, how to put this? Uh, oh, never mind. Go on to other things. It's too hard. <laughs> Chris, it's too I'm hard. I'm going to move the mic so people can ask questions too. But uh, the, uh, the loose terms thing actually leads me to a question. And this might be sort of a nuts and bolts contract question, but do you ever need to put into a contract what you won't do, or is it only what you will do and you're not expected any more than that? Like, you, if I haven't put in, then I'm going to buy your crops, then I'm, I'm not yeah. going to. What's the answer? Good question. My view of it, to a certain degree, is that it all depends. <laughs> uh, and what I mean by that is kind of, um, are you expecting something that's likely to go wrong? Uh, do you want to cut those things off at the passes, for example? Um, if a contract that, that provides only for what you will do without any kind of, you know, other whatever or any sort of looseness in that regard, if you choose at some point to not do something that isn't specifically itemized in the contract, I think you'd be within your rights to say, well, this is not something that's outlined in my duties. I do not want to do it. However, having not said that at the beginning of the contract, there's this risk of burning a bridge in doing that right? Because it becomes very antagonistic. So if you are concerned about something coming up that you're not comfortable with, or if you know that there's a specific skill set you don't have that you just have an inkling might be, I think it is important or is meaningful to sort of identify those things in the contract early so as to avoid that antagonism later. Right. Um, when I think back to that project where there was no master uh, master list of job descriptions. Had I put in my contract, I won't do X, Y, and Z, that producer might have realized, oh, I'm going to need somebody to do that. <laughs> and, and we all would have had happier lives. So, so I think there is, a, there is a way to do it um, that can be, if you, if you massage the wording, that can be non- antagonistic and then there's also the way to like really reinforce uh, certain aspects so um, recently there was an ADC designer who was working with a a new but wealthy producer um, well out of town but um, and so the 
The issue for him was that this was a producer who had very little experience. So he wasn't sure that this person had really taken the time to understand the job. So he took all the things that he felt were most important verbatim from the contract and put it in a rider. Because when you get a, a standard contract, you think, oh, well, this is standard and, and, and you know, a young producer might be willing to sign. But she read that rider because it was something the designer had introduced. So you can say things more than once in a contract. It can be a good Emphasis. idea. Yeah, that's or, clever. I know a lot of like, or a few sort of production manager, stage manager types who don't have driver's licenses, for example. And you know, driver's license. That's true. So how often are production managers assumed to, again, be a driver? And it's that... Yeah, all the time. Yeah, <laughs> right. So saying, I don't have a driver's license is something yeah. that can be meaningful. And again, whether you should be the driver or not is secondary, and whether that's something you want to negotiate out of the contract is secondary. But if you're not addressing that specifically to at least say, I do not have a driver's license, don't expect me to drive to Mississauga and visit decades for Saves you from later having to be like... Oh, actually, shit, I'm so sorry. Yeah, because it's more embarrassing yeah. that way when yeah. it comes up later, right? Yeah. Uh, so in terms of sort of tips on negotiating stuff, do you in general have a dollar per hour figure? Is that a thing that enters into the arithmetic? Because it does. It certainly does for me, just as a handy guideline. Kind of. Kind of. And it, it morphs and it shifts. And it for me, it usually isn't an hourly Right. And this kind of comes back to my sort of thing of, of I don't like to track my time. So, but I tend to think more in a weekly context than an hourly context. Yeah. Because I'm almost always negotiating flat fee contracts for an entire design. Is, like it doesn't get broken down all that specifically usually. But, and it has changed over the years. It changes every year in terms of what I think a week of my time is worth. And right. I tend to look at it as a year... I think about it as 50 weeks instead of 52, because yep. you should take a couple weeks off. Yep. I don't, but you should. Um, <laughs> One uh, should. I think about it as 50 weeks. And then what do you want to make in a year? And so what does that mean you should make in a week? Uh, and then, so, okay, so you're doing a show. Tech week is probably two weeks worth of time. Week and a half, maybe two weeks of prep, whatever it is. If it's a design, everything's a bit different. Yeah. But to start to think about it in terms of about how much time do I think this is going to work out to. And it's not precise to an hour, but it's gives me a ballpark range yeah. and then from there I can kind of guesstimate well this is I think this is a $3,000 gig or a $5,000 right. gig or so you have a, a, a vague algorithm yeah yeah yeah. that's that is based on like you know, at, you know there was a point in my time where it was uh, 20 bucks an hour which was yeah. more about 800 bucks a week and yeah. that has changed over time but mm -hmm. that's you know probably in that six to $800 a week is when I started and For sure. now it's different yeah. than that well, if you have any sort of authority at all, you should be charging more than the casual crew. Yeah. And the casual crew rate is inching up slowly but yeah. surely. And, and that's something I will tend to base it on, right? I'll yeah. look at, so, you know, what is the crew rate in this venue? Mm -hmm. And again, I then take it to a weekly just because it's easier to deal yeah, with. Totally. And I say, okay, if that crew works an average week, what does that work out mm -hmm. to? And I, I tend to use something along yeah. those lines as a basis. Yeah, because um, as a PM, let's say, you tend to think you're adding more value to the project than any one And crew you have member. to be an authority figure to those people, totally, right? Totally. So if you're the supervisor of somebody, should you be making less than that person? No, absolutely not. <laughs> because presumably you're directing two or three or a dozen of them. Yeah. 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 And sort of the idea, too, if you're, you walk out the door at the end of the day, are you done your work? 
Yeah. Right. So are you doing, you know, like yeah. it's a little different for administrators, I think, from production managers where you, you live with the project. But sometimes I get hired for a very specific small project that, you know, I can consult with someone or help them go over their, uh, you know, their chart of accounts isn't anything like the CADAC. And I'm going to sit down with them for four hours and help them figure it out. Well, OK, that I can or even an afternoon, mm -hmm. I can say, OK, this is probably going to take six hours. And what are the hours? And then I kind of build myself in a little buffer. Yeah. Right. So if I think it's going to take four hours, I'm going to think more along the six to eight mm -hmm. hours because, you, A, it's always better to get paid more. Totally. <laughs> but nothing ever seems to take the amount of time yeah. you originally yeah, planned yeah. it to be yeah. because you're in partnership with someone else and maybe they're not as prepared. Maybe mm -hmm. they're more prepared and that, yeah. or maybe it morphs into something else. Yeah. Um, the consequence being sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Exactly. Yeah. In that. Yeah. And I think... The other thing, I, thinking about jobs that you can kind of walk away from at the end of the day or not, yeah. as a production manager, how many nights are you going to stay up not sleeping because you're worried that something's not going to happen? And what's the value of that? Most of them, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I had another thought in there that has since disappeared, but Fair along enough. those same well, lines. Well, in terms of ballooning time, so I mentioned earlier, like, my sort of, if you're offering me this fee, that translates to X number of hours in theory. And so rather than spell that out in the contract, it would be a conversation of, so... So my tech week, I think you're going to get 60 hours or whatever. And then, you know, if it's 65 hours, I don't care. If it's 55 hours, you shouldn't care. If it's 75 hours, then we got to talk. That's sort of the, 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 if, if we're, how do you deal with the rapidly ballooning increments of time? My problem, and this, this becomes one of the reasons why I don't like production management all that much, but my tendency is, well, I lost that bet. Right. is how I usually tend to think about it. And maybe there's a better way of thinking about it, but there are bets I win and bets I lose. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it works, in fact, very well for me, and other times it works very poorly for me. Right. And I kind of ultimately feel like they average out. Okay. And I remembered my other point in terms of time, which is as a crew member, you are paid for when you start work. Let's say it's 8 a.m. Yeah. until whatever. Um, if you're negotiating something like a flat fee, especially if you're trying to overlap multiple projects, my perspective is don't disregard travel time when you're trying to figure out how much time you're spending on a project. Mm -hmm. And I account for that. If it's going to take me an hour each day to get there, I count for that. Yeah. And, you know, again, it all goes into a big lump sum, so maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't. But I don't disregard it. Um, because if you have to get from Tarragon in the morning to Passmore, well, those are close, but if you have to get from... Tarragon yeah. in the morning to the Sony Center in the afternoon, yeah. that's an hour, if you're on transit, 45 minutes of your day, something yes. like that, that you're going to lose in there. And so, what, is it your lunch hour? Because mm -hmm. that would be unpleasant. That is unpleasant. So thinking about that when you budget your, your time as well um, is to not disregard travel. Right. Yes. Michael Cruz. <clears throat> I'll speak loudly. Uh, because we have somebody from company management here, how do you, can you talk about how... Uh, the company thinks about setting the fee and the things they take into consideration. So the other side of this equation. Um, yeah. So it's, it's difficult for me because I, where I'm working now, I don't do that negotiation. But uh, generally, from different freelance projects and and where I was the um, previous general manager, when we were talking about let's say design fees, um, the we always hired our production manager first. And the production manager would be in on the conversations, and they would know the full budget for the project. 
so that they could say, look, this is going to be a lot of the set designer's time figuring out how you're going to get these 27 locations to work on a stage that is 12 feet wide and 10 feet deep. <laughs> I'm, I wish I was joking, but... The, <laughs> um, but, you know, you've got writers who are very ambitious, and uh, and so where where do you put the time? So do you put the... If you want to pay someone for the amount of time that's going to take to figure that out, you have no money left to execute it. So, and you, you kind of have to make that really gross decision of what elements get what kind of weight to execute a project. Um, and that's, that's very difficult. But if you're doing a musical, you have to make sure that you have a music budget, <laughs> right? That um, if you're doing um, a show that relies on um, uh, like special effects or, or um, magical, you, you need to make sure you have, you, you kind of have to pick elements um, and then it gets weighted or you say okay you know what I know my company likes to work with Simon we know that he can work with this he knows the venue so so he knows the venue he knows all the folks who work there um, he's worked with this writer before he gets their sensibility so we can spend a little bit more on XYZ we know that he's going to come in and he's going to serve this project well so what does that what, where does that save us in heartache? Uh, where does that save us in uh, tech week, right? So if we know that you know the team, you know the space, um, you know the director, mm -hmm. and we can get tech week done. PM's very, very clear on that sort of yes. thing. I'm offering you more than I offered the last person because I know I'm not going to need to hire exactly. blah for all of a sudden for something. Exactly. <laughs> and it's um, sometimes it is, okay, this project is going to cost us a heck of a lot more and we've got to bump up the budget at the expense of another show in the season because it has 27 venues and 14 cast members and each cast member has six changes of wardrobe. <laughs> um, that might be a slight exaggeration, but actually probably not. When you're doing a musical, it goes, it goes crazy very quickly. Um, but I think, I think it is important to have someone from production management and not someone just like me who's the numbers person, I'll make it balance and I'll, um, I'll say, oh, no, you know what? You're missing your union minimums or you're missing, you forgot to calculate RRSP or think about overtime or, oh, hey, there's a stat holiday in there and you're never going to get a crew to come in uh, to work that day or you're dealing with two, three stat holidays because it's over Christmas and New Year's. Um, there's so many variables that... But there will be an element of, okay, it's a unit set. It's modern day versus multiple venues. There's going to be some research or it's futuristic and it's, it's nebulous. There's going to be an element of how much time, you know, and it, is this going to be really heavy in the research, really heavy on, uh, so it's a design, but we're also going to expect you to do the technical drawings. So how much time? Are the technical drawings going to take, and that that will be I, I considered sort of extension to that. Whenever I'm in negotiation, occasionally I work for very small companies. Sometimes I work with bigger companies, but um, in any case, as much as possible, I try to avoid negotiating with the artistic staff. Yeah. And there are some cases where that they start going down that road, and I have to veer it off. And 
say, and this applies in, I think more as a designer than as a production manager, because I think the person I will often end up talking to is that previously hired production manager. But, um, but I try to never negotiate with artistic unless I absolutely have to. I always try to push it to somebody on the administration yeah. side just because I want to feel like I can not be antagonistic, but I want to be able to push a little bit in a negotiation and really make sure that my needs are taken care of. But I don't want to risk that pushing impacting the creative relationship that I'm about to enter into. So that's one of my really sort of key things. Is yeah, that but what happens to... when you have an artistic producer and nobody else to turn to? Well, yeah, then, then, then you sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Sally, yes. Um, this is... That's a silly question. Do production managers normally write the contract, or do they normally come from higher up? Is there a normal? Is there a both? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Good question. Like, for the production manager, uh, or like, production no, manager hiring other folks? Actually, both, because I think I've been asked to write my own contract as a production manager before, which was interesting. And then writing contracts for designers, and then I'm just not sure what level of management that comes from. I'll do a little plug for ADC, even though I don't work for them, which is that the indie contract is freely available. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, well, the, so if you're hiring designers... The indie contract... Yeah, is it only for ADC standard designers? standard terms are freely available. Uh, the contract is only available if you hire ADC well, designers. I, I mean, on, <laughs> on the other side, what you can do is you can hire an ADC designer and then, you know, you've seen her <laughs> contract. <laughs> but but so, so, so something I have done in my career, because my, like my own career has been very checkered and I've hired all kinds of people and uh, some of them I don't know their jobs particularly well uh, when I hire them is I keep a clause library. So whenever I see a good clause, I like ferret it away and, and very often it can be adapted for another, another situation. I also sort of keep this, um, well it's actually become a physical file at this point and I call them my incident reports. And what, what those are is when something when there was a misunderstanding, when something didn't go quite as planned, is there a way that that could have been addressed in a contract? And I'll, I'll write myself a note about it. And then um, I will uh, use this collection of bits and bobs um, to make ever-improving, I hope, ever-improving contracts. For sure. Um, and it's probably a good strategy um, for you to begin to do the same and to to share contracts, you know, cut cut out the money if you find it embarrassing. If you don't want anyone to know that you did the show for fourteen dollars, um, you know, um, and and um, share those contracts because ultimately, um, uh, misunderstandings are expensive. They're expensive in terms of what can happen to the show. They're expensive uh, in terms of personal energy expenditure. Um, and uh, whatever we can do as, as an industry as a whole to lubricate that system, um, I think is very worthwhile. And I mean, I think to sort of also think about what you were talking about in terms of writing your own contracts and all that, is I think, in fact, it's not uncommon for people to be asked to write up contracts kind of from a blank slate, I think. And so your sort of strategy, Sheila, for building your own template is is a good one. I think at the early stages it can be hard when you don't have that uh, as a place a to start. Online. It, there is a when fair I bit. I was to say age, I think there was no Google. Well yes, <laughs> I was to say there's there's the capacity to find a lot of those contracts much more easily now or 
or contracts that you can use as a template to start from. Um, but it is sort of a daunting thing to be handed this blank slate and asked to write up a contract. Um, because it's it it is challenging. It's not easy, and God knows what you're going to forget. Yeah. And, and I think if I was a production manager and management had no contracts, I would make sure that it wasn't me signing those contracts. That it was management. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so go ahead and draft them. But if you're not the one, if you're not the signing officer and ultimately responsible, and it, it, I think it really does depend too on the size of the company. If you're part of a collective, you know, where you maybe you do have a leader uh, who's sort of run with the idea, but it's very much a collective uh, in all terms of, you know, if, if there's uh, any of the organizations involved, that's going to be very different than if you're partnering with, you know, the Canadian Opera Company as, as, a, as a temporary or, you know, they're adding a project and they need another production manager because their expectation, uh, that's a management position, right? And it's... it's um, probably a staff position, even if it's a temporary staff position, you're probably given a lot more responsibility and the expectations and the amount of money and the, you know, the, the risks and the rewards will both be much higher. Um, Did that more or less answer your question? Because I mean, uh, really, we're just okay. That, yes, it's hard in the north. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's hard, and it will happen both ways. Yeah. Totally. Right? But like, as as templates again. Uh, so at the Tarragon, I mean, as company manager, so you business manager. Sorry, sorry. Um, I used to work there. It's ridiculous. They changed the title. Uh, okay, okay, that's comforting. Thank you. Um, so uh, I mean, Susan and Eleanor will will make those contracts yes. and then send them yeah. out to designers and and other staff members. That's yeah. true, right? That's so true. that's production manager and general manager. Uh, managing yes. Yeah. Making that happen, right. That's right. And then your previous gig, you said you would hire a production manager first and then use them to consult on the nature of everybody else's contract. Yes. And, and that seems like a fairly friendly way to do things either way, actually, as long as the sort of administrative and production management And I think if those involved. relationships are clear, Yeah. right? Because on those contracts, too, it, all of the, whether it's the designers or a, a TD um, relationship or a PA or whatever the other positions are, it would very clearly on the contract say, this is who you're reporting to. Yeah. You are reporting to the production manager who reports to the managing director. So yeah. overtime must be approved by blah. Mm. Or additional duties um, must be approved by or... Uh, right. I think sometimes uh, writing a contract is a little bit like writing a grant. It's in some ways kind of a colossal pain in the ass. But um, in doing so, you're using your imagination to imagine a sequence of events and that, you know, I sit here today at my desk with nothing on stage and what are all the things that are going to have to happen to have that beautiful moment on stage and are all those moments in not maybe that one contract but in all those assorted contracts. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, it's really quite an imaginative um, project. Does that make it seem daunt more daunting? Because that, that scares me. Well, what I was say is, is then where I go with that is, is I think also to not be afraid to email everybody you've ever worked with to say, hey, do yeah. you have a contract that you like to use? And to not be afraid to share that information. And one of the things that I kept thinking about in terms of the availability of stock template contracts and stuff like that is um, I hire assistants occasionally. Um, and I've... Uh, Fortunately, I've never sort of run into a problem where my tendency to just write them a check at the end of the process for an invoice has caused a problem. Um, but in no small part, the reason I've never really done a sort of formal assistant contract is because I don't have a template for one. 
and I don't really have the time in my schedule. If at the moment when I need an assistant, I don't really have the time to go digging around for a template on what I'm looking for out of an assistant. So I tend to just say, can you come do this thing, please, and send me an invoice. Um, so for better and more likely for worse, I have sometimes just abandoned that entirely because right. I... Uh, don't have time to deal with the fact that I don't have a stock contract. ADC has sort of noodled with that yeah. notion. We're not there yet. Um, um, but but I think one of the routes we'll go is we'll crowdsource. You yeah. Know? Well, this is a great, thing. great question. I really like And so we learned, uh, what did we learn from this? That the standard terms of the ADC... Or is it, what's, yeah. what's available on the ADC? The standard terms. So those, so those are what I would call the non... So it's not the contract template, but it's all the standard terms. So it will, right. be, it will have all the definitions. It will have the standard sort of job descriptions. And I think that's one of the really most valuable things yeah. that, that the ADC has done for designers and that I know other organizations have done for sort of their respective disciplines is done a really good job of identifying what, it, what a designer's responsibility is. Mm -hmm. And so, again, thinking in this context as uh, in a... In, any capacity of negotiating a contract, of understanding what will you get or what won't you get, yeah, is that it is all out there, yeah. for sure, publicly. So there are resources yeah. available. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's available for download on the um, ADC website. Uh, if you go to Four Producers, just Designers. click the icon. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, what else did we learn from there? We learned that it is ask, annoying. Ask your friends. It's annoying, ask, but ask yes. your friends. So yeah. uh, similarly totally. to the 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 idea that. You know, as a PM, occasionally get suckered into building a set for free. Um, <laughs> if you ask your PM friends, you you are less likely to have that mistake um, be part of your life. Uh, you know, like uh, Ryan McDougall was a friend of mine and uh, is a friend of mine. And uh, um, he's not in the city anymore. He's not dead, um, for the record, uh, as far as I know. <laughs> and um, he, yeah, he made that mistake and then mentioned it. That, hey, Kevin, don't do this. <laughs> um, you know, a, a couple of weeks too late, but yeah, it was really valuable. Yeah, I think in, in all cases, whether it's about looking for contract templates, whether it's about negotiation, yeah, I think um, I think there's a push amongst a lot of people to be a bit more open about how contracts and negotiations have gone and what the fees are that being people are being paid mm -hmm. for a whole variety of jobs. Like I think we're kind of entering a period of hopefully greater openness in that regard, um, but. You know, in the way that I think it was in other previous uh, uh, panels about asking for help or advice when required, the same is true when negotiating a contract. We only are as strong as our community. For sure. And if you've been handed a template, let's say you've never done an ADC contract before and you're suddenly handed an ADC contract, take your time to read it. Ask questions. It's There's nothing nothing wrong with saying to the person who's offering you the contract, I need a little bit of time to go over this. When do you need to hear back from me, right? Um, but I think that's key is to establish a timeline of when the next part of that communication will happen. I, I take phone calls from producers almost as often as I take phone calls from designers who have questions about the contract. And I still sort of feel that it's a member service to answer that producer's questions because it's about... Uh, work environment. Yeah, that's a great point. A great point. And uh, similarly, I mean, maybe not to the same extent, but similarly, like I've never run into a situation where asking an IATSE man, even on a call about their contract, has brought me unnecessary hostility. Yeah. Like the worst that's ever happened to me is like, 
you know what? Coffee's in 15 minutes. Let's talk about it then. Yeah. That's like the worst that's ever And that's what I was about to say is yeah. most of those IATSE contracts, if they're not available online, a production yeah. manager or whatever will send you, if not the contract, then some yeah. of the key details. And if you're, as is increasingly the case in this city, if you're walking into a venue that is staffed by IATSE Local 58, it behooves you oh, yeah. to read that contract <laughs> and know. understand yeah. that contract. Not least of which, in you know, there are some venues where the bill out for labor can reach seventy-five or eighty dollars an hour yeah. for a technician. And then when you put and time as and a half, as soon as you that, hit yeah. some sort of a penalty or some sort of infringement, yeah. you're in double time, and yeah. it all gets very expensive. But also, every venue is different, right? Yeah. Whereas the Associated Designers and Equity have stock templates that apply across either the entire country or smaller regions. I'm mm -hmm. not sure about equity. IATSE negotiates a separate contract with every single venue in which its technicians work. So there are provisions that may exist at a place like Soul Pepper that don't exist at the Sony Center or don't exist at the Four Seasons Center or won't exist in a few months at Factory, yeah. for example. And speaking of sort of learning from, like, taking those as templates, like span of day is going to be a thing that will exist on each of those contracts. And so that's a question you, you know to ask. Yeah. Um, Shauna Miller. Yeah. Has no span of day. I don't believe no span of day over time. Interesting. Implication can stages contract after eight hours. All of your extra technicians are yeah. in over time. Yeah. Um, Shauna Miller was one of our very first panelists. I think our, yeah, on our first panel. And, and she tells a story about going into a venue and speaking to a, a IATSE man who's saying like, so your schedule is lovely, but if you start earlier, instead of doing, you know, eight to six, whatever you do, seven to five, you save four grand a day, like that kind of like, and they're quite generous with that sort of thing. It's, it's not, uh, they're not nearly as scary as apparently they used to be. Yeah. yeah they're not out to get you. Yeah. Ultimately, you know, they're there to help. Totally. Those contracts can be confusing and it can yeah. be hard to wade through those details. And if you don't but ask. It's a good one yeah. to do. It's good to go through them and to start to understand how... How they're structured. That was such a good question. I kind of want to end on it. Um, <laughs> but uh, just to open an entirely new kettle of... Just to uh, not do that. Just to not do that. Um, <laughs> what about uh, contractual agreements that may or may not conflict with employment standards? Have you run into them? Do they exist? I know they exist. Well, they may... They, they, so a contract may or may not mean that you are an employee... Right? So you can be an independent contractor, in which case employment standards may or may not apply, right? Mm -hmm. So in theory, you could work for $2 an hour. Yep. Um, you shouldn't, but in theory, <laughs> you could. But I think I have done. And, like, you know, summer stock seems to be uh, a good place to make that mistake and then yeah. not make it again. Um, I mean, that's one of the. Um, issues, particularly with design, but with other jobs too, where there's invisible work. There's work that is not seen. Yeah. Um, and so those hours are, are not typically counted. Um, ADC has just recently started something called the Timekeeping Project, where we've merged two apps so that you can track hours on your phone with specific design tasks. And we're actually going to be looking at it very carefully to know um, uh, how fees are shaking out in terms of time spent mm -hmm. um, when you but when you hire someone I mean you're you're also hiring their vision and uh, other uh, other things that are very difficult to quantify um, so uh, 
so looking at it purely from a labor standpoint is maybe not the uh, most useful perspective. Well, is it is it legally possible to bring the labor case at that point? If, if, if is there a precedence I mean, issue I think, there? I, I would think that the key in that is this whole idea of, of whether your contract is one in which you are defying an employee-employer relationship, in which case the answer is no, you cannot breach the labor standards, or whether you are defining a contract specifically with the intent of not defining an employee-employer relationship, which, for example, design contracts in this country, it's different in the United States, but in this country, design contracts are designed specifically to separate us, and we are. I am not an employee of the theater at which I work. Right. Again, that's different in the U.S., but in Canada, that's the way it works. Um, and so in that way, uh, although I could try to negotiate in, or as a production manager, if I'm specifically keeping myself separate as a, as a contractor, not an employee, I could choose to attempt to negotiate labor standards into my contract. I could use that as a rationale to ask for something, but I don't think that there would be a, a, a binding obligation on the other party to grant you that request. Interesting. I don't but, believe. But there can still be long-term repercussions to use a recent example, for instance, Factory elected not to engage designers for an entire season, which I am pretty sure put a lot of stress on the crew because there was no one to make decisions or get fine stuff or designate how big stuff should be. Or um, and so now they're finding that you know those those jobs are now being firmly defined within labor standards. So right. there may not in that contract, but there may be in subsequent contracts. Right, right, right. Interesting. Cool. Uh, does anybody else have any insightful and cutting questions? If not, I think that's a lovely place to end. Michael Cruz, we need, we need what, five seconds of silence? We do, but I have a, I have a question. Okay. <laughs> Uh, is this an appropriate venue to discuss minimum fees? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, always. Maybe reluctant, but what's your take and what's the complications and what's the advantage and how should young designers especially approach a producer with minimum fees in place? Um, my, I'll sort of quick thing before no, I hand over to Sheila. Yeah. So for me, one of the really critical things about minimum fees is... Um, there are times in which I do think that, in fact, the minimum fees are not inappropriate. If I, if I think sort of the question is ultimately directed towards ADC minimum fees, although I know equity also sets minimum fees. Um, I think there are actually some limited circumstances in which the minimum fees are not entirely inappropriate. I think that there are many circumstances in which they are too low. I think um, there are... Uh, and this is sort of a conversation that ADC has had many, many times in terms of whether the fees are the right fees or not, and how do we quantify it, and what does it mean? Um, if I think about, uh, again, a dance context, and somebody where we are often in tech for two or three days at most in a process, we don't have a week and a half of tech. Um, and so for a young designer starting out or with a fledgling company, um, that, that doesn't have resources and they're asking for you to come in for two days to a place like Pia Balans, which has, what, 12 lights? Um, maybe 13, no, no, I'm not 12 sure. 12 dimmers. It's got plenty of lights. <laughs> right? That, that there's, this, there's a moment where those fees can be appropriate, but 
very rapidly the scale of work that's required, I think, can exceed what those minimums are. And I think one of the greatest challenges we have in this, uh, well, even in the city, but I'm sure it exists everywhere, is where minimum fees are used as a basis for negotiation for a residency expectation that is wildly out of line with what a minimum amount of work is. My, my take as a negotiator is minimum fees mean minimum work. So how little time can I be there? And how quickly can I get out? And so, in fact, the only instances in which I've ever been willing to work for minimum fees are very strictly controlled out-of-town gigs where I can fly in, fly out as fast as possible in order to make sure that the residency is controlled. Because in town, for example, they want you at all the production meetings and they want you to come yeah. to a bunch more rehearsals because yeah. you're just in town, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So there are circumstances in which I don't think they're out of line, but I think that those circumstances are far rarer than is often used by negotiators. Can I touch very quickly on the, the time limit you imposed there? Getting back to the sort of dollar per hour figure, as a, as a part-time terrible PM, um, my sort of rule of thumb was like, can I make this much money pulling calls for the week? Is that going to be more or less hours? Is it going to be more or less stress? And then if, you know, there aren't that many calls available, maybe I'll take it anyway, but... In general, like if I could just be a crew guy, like if I can remove my brain from the equation and just be a pair of arms for the week and make as much money, why would I bother? Yeah, I mean, there's an element of that that is personal choice. I don't, I never really particularly liked being a technician. Yeah. So I'd rather make the same amount or yeah, a little totally. bit less and do something I enjoy. But it does get, you know, I, mm -hmm. I am sort of very careful in, yeah. in the amount of time. Can I show up, see a run, focus the lights, cue the lights, see a preview and get out? Yeah. So to put minimum fees in, we don't call them minimum fees at ADC, we call them base fees. And we see them as a bargaining floor where you begin to negotiate. And um, this really comes from, so for those of you that don't know, I, I worked for ADC back in the mid-80s in administrative capacity and came back about six, 25 years later to discover that this same conversation was still being had. 25 years, and I was like, guys, you know, like, it's, it's, it's time to do something because we need to be able to make incremental improvements. If, <laughs> if, if you had started this journey 25 years ago, imagine where you might be today. It was a deeply uh, debated um, uh, question, uh, and uh, it included no shouting, but did include some tears. Um, but then the, um, the initial, so, and it was something that was ratified by the membership as a whole. Um, there, there were a number of reasons why it was done. One is that where there were no base fees in place, some of the fees that were being paid were, uh, abusive. Uh, two or three hundred dollars for a show, for an entire show, for jillions of hours. Um, the other reason being that um, as more uh, indie companies formed, very often those were driven by performers and directors who did not have a strong technical background. Mm -hmm. And so they were unaware of the hidden work and the hidden hours that happened. And so um, they would budget based only on the work that they would see, which for designers is not very much. It, you know, it, sh it shows up at the end. Um, and also, there was, without having base fees, there was no framework 
for, from which they could budget. And it doesn't matter who you are, but if the project has only been budgeted with a handful of dollars, if you ask for you know, even two handfuls of dollars, the money won't be there. It won't even be there in the grant applications that they, that they wrote to get the cash. So we opted to institute them, and we promised our membership that we would uh, look very closely at what happened to fees as a result. The big fear, of course, was that minimums would become maximums. And what I can tell you, looking at after three years, is we did a very thorough study, and we found that fees on the whole increased. It also gave us an opportunity to address a number of really um, other types of inequities that were happening within the industry. Uh, in particular, costume designers were making far less per equal work than other, uh, than other disciplines. Um, partly we felt this may have come from the fact that the majority of costume designers were uh, women. Um, and uh, this, of course, was having a trickle-down effect through the industry. Um, because if designers are supervising, then everyone under them is making less. So over the course of three years, we created parity between set and costume designers. We also discovered in our study that we um, uh, fees as a whole uh, increased upwards, uh, not in a beautiful, smooth curve, you know, a bit more like the stock market, but that generally there has been an upward um, trend, um, and so uh, we, but, but it is not to say that I do not routinely see contracts that are three, four, and even five times the base fee based on the scope and scale of the project, because uh, that fee is determined based on a simple production. Right. Yeah. But if you are planning something more extravagant, then it had better be in your in your budget. Uh, it it has proven to be a good thing for um, for designers. Um, I assume that um, I haven't done studies uh, for uh, equity, but I assume there's also a rationale for them. Um, and I think you know having those guidelines for young producers is absolutely critical. Well, that's what I want to sort of end on because that's super critical. And we're going to have to finish the rest of this at the bar, I think. But um, <laughs> the uh, the having a base fee there is really important because you mentioned grant applications, and that's where the money comes from. So if there's no number to base that equation from, then it may as well be zero. Fantastic. Thanks very much. <laughs> That was another recording of The Bellows, recorded at the Central Bar in Toronto in October 17th. In just a few weeks, an interview with designer E.O. Sharp, another one from Shaw Festival. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good, with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. And please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theatre design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetuttleblockca and on facebook.com forward slash thetuttleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetuttleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget, please, that if you like the show, please support us on patreon.com. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block. <laughs>